Sego, and welcome to Resistance Radio. I am John Kane, uh, and again, I'm I'm glad that you've uh, you you've decided to tune me in. Um, let me say that I I know that I've talked a lot about Native people serving in non-Native institutions, whether it's military, whether it's you know elected office or whatever else, but. A, a comment got made recently that said, for the first time in 230 years, Congress has full indigenous representation. Okay, so, <laughs> so I heard that, and of course, all right, that's what we're going to say. Um, let's, let me understand what they meant by that. And what was meant by that, and, and I think it was actually said by the congressman from Hawaii, uh, Kai uh, Kahele, who is who has native uh, Hawaiian ancestry. I don't, I don't know his full background. I know he's, he's been very much in the system in terms of uh, serving in the military. I, I think he was a pilot. Uh, um, he was a commissioned officer. I think he was actually a, a senator for a while, but uh, maybe it was only state senator. But now he sits in Congress. And what he was talking about is that now there is a, a, a person of native uh, Hawaiian ancestry in Congress there's also a person of Alaskan Native ancestry in Congress uh, because of uh, um, uh, Mary uh, Peltola. Um, and then and Sharice David, uh, David's of um, Kansas. Uh, she's Ho-Chunk, and, uh, and she's in Congress. There are, I will say that there's, there's also three other congressmen, um, but they're Republicans, so they almost don't count in this conversation, I guess. So, but there's there's basically six people of native, some level of native ancestry that are serving in Congress. And so the comment is that now, for the first time in American history, Congress has full indigenous representation. No, no, we don't. That's not the system. Let me be clear. Those folks serving in those offices, whether it's Hawaii, Alaska, or Kansas, they represent Hawaii, Alaska, and Kansas. Uh, and, and as far as Hawaii and, and Kansas are concerned, they only represent the con uh, congressional district that they, that they were elected to. In, in uh, Alaska, there's only one, uh, the whole state is one congressional district, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, and they wouldn't be elected if, it, if they were only elected by Native people. And I got to tell you, even in the case of Sharice Davids, she's a congressman in Kansas, but she's Ho-Chunk from Wisconsin. So she doesn't even technically represent the Ho-Chunk. I mean, she represents Kansas. And, you know, I, I, look, there's Native people in Kansas, and don't get me wrong. And I'm not suggesting that these folks will not bring some element of concern with them to these offices for Indigenous peoples. I'm not saying that. I'm not. I, I'm not questioning that. But what I'm saying is they don't serve Native people. We didn't elect them. You know, and I'm sitting here on the Cattaraugus Territory of Sanka Nation. I sure didn't elect any, any of these guys. So I don't feel like they are representing my interests. And to be clear, in the case of the three that I just mentioned, they're Democrats. And we can have a conversation about what that means, or if you're a Republican, what that means. So do you represent party first, or do you represent your district first? Um, do you represent your state? Do you, uh, or do you represent somehow your specific ethnicity? Now, look, I get it. The level of white dominance in all areas of government and politics and, uh, you know, 
corporate, you know, corporate USA, all of it. it it's disproportionate. Um, so does a white guy who serves in Congress, in Congress represent white people? Um, he doesn't really need to because almost all of them are white. I mean, saying that 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 Congress is now uh, um, indigenous people are fully represented now in Congress is like saying the Supreme Court is fully represented by black people now because Clarence Thomas is there. That's not the way it works. You have to know more about the individual. And like I said, um, uh, Kai Kahele, he's you know, he just like so many Native people had been very indoctrinated. Military service, you know, again, a commissioned officer in, I think, the Air National Guard or Air Reserves or something like that. Um, Mary Patola, her father's white, and he was a military guy. And, you know, I know he, he, she has Native ancestry on her mother's side. And, and, again, I'm not questioning her level of nativeness. But, uh, you know, Sharice Davids, you know, look, I, I'm not questioning her integrity or anything else like that. But to say that because they because these three and, and the three others have a level of native ancestry in their what their blood quantum, I, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, doesn't necessarily mean that they're representing native interests. Look, in Hawaii in particular, I have a lot of friends in Hawaii. And and most of the friends that I have in Hawaii are very pro-Hawaiian kingdom and trying to reassert their sovereignty and their dependence. If you're running for, if you're serving U.S. Congress, you're not representing that in, in Congress, and you sure as hell weren't going to have the, 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 you know, the party endorsement. These guys represent the Democratic Party um, uh, system, you know, that apparatus. And, and, you know, and however anybody listening to this feels about that, well, okay, and that's fine. I mean, look, I have... My druthers, I guess, when it comes to most Republicans versus most uh, Democrats, and and you know, I I think for the most part, not just because of Trump, but certainly consistent with Trump, the Republicans have have really allowed racism to percolate to the top. It was always there, percolate to the top and be a hallmark of uh, of their party at this point. That's not to say that there's not plenty of racism within the Democratic Party. I've talked about Kathy, uh, Kathy Hochul and, uh, and her predecessor, Andrew, um, uh, Andrew Cuomo. Look, we've had plenty of um, racist behavior out of Democrats, and we always will because we don't fit into the system. As, as Native people who are really trying to preserve a distinction, an autonomy, sovereignty, Native sovereignty and and doesn't isn't consistent with any part of the United States. It's it's a problem. It's 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 glossed over. Yeah, I know there are elected officials that, that say, oh yeah, I I know what tribal sovereignty is. You remember that that classic bumbling of George George Bush uh, W saying, uh, well yeah, uh, tribal sovereignty is um, uh, sovereignty uh, for tribes. He didn't know what the hell he was talking about. He had no idea what it meant. And and he but he he never entered into a conversation. Um, he never had any fear of entering into a conversation that he knew nothing about. But you know what? That's true with most uh, politicians. I think it was Anthony uh, Scalia who said, when it comes to Native issues in the courts, we're pretty much making stuff up as we go along. Because, you know, there's too much inconsistency, whether it's with the courts or whether it's with the law or whether it's with politics. I mean, it's too inconsistent with the stated uh, American values. Kind of like slavery and 
you know, and we the people, right? I mean, yeah, there, there's just too much inconsistency there. And that's been, that's been our history. You know, but, it, and, and again, I, I, I applaud their success in that system. But it's not our system. If you wanted us to be represented in the United States government, I don't, I don't mean being a part of it, but, but to be represented, then we would have diplom diplomatic relations with the United States. And we don't. We don't. I mean, I know Obama and, and I think, uh, you know, Biden's done the same thing where they have this um, indigenous summit or tribal summit or whatever they call it. And it's right around you know, Thanksgiving time. So it's the run up to Christmas and, yeah, and, and native governments send uh, their elected officials or their federally recognized officials, federally recognized, mind you, because otherwise they wouldn't be allowed to go to the, the White House. And they pose for pictures in front of the Christmas tree and, you know, and, they, and the president does a flyby, essentially, or walk-by, really, but a flyby. Um, and, and some, you know, conversations exist amongst, amongst staffers, but it's not a summit. There's no real discussion on what Native people um, need or expect from the federal government. And I don't mean in terms of charity. I just mean in terms of relationship. It never happens. And having Native people serve in Congress or the Senate or a cabinet secretary doesn't necessarily mean that we that we now have representation. I go back to a, you know I remember when um, when Mitch McConnell uh, once tried to address the issue of reparations uh, for uh, descendants of uh, of slaves, um, and he said, "What do you mean reparations? You had a black president. There's that was your repara reparations. I mean, they he literally tried to reduce." All of the American racist history towards, uh, you know, towards Africans and black people uh, here in the United States to having been resolved because Barack Obama was elected president. Like, OK, there we gave you your fix. Well, that struck a note with me because that's I knew at some point we were going to have that same kind of thing said about us. And now Deb Hallam sits there as the um, uh, as a cabinet secretary, the secretary of the interior. And. There are probably people thinking the same thing. Well, Native people got something now. No, we didn't. She got something. She got a job. She got a job. She got hired by, <laughs> by Joe Biden. And you know who she represents there? Joe Biden. It doesn't matter what her background is. It doesn't matter how Native she looks or where she comes from. Look, she was elected to Congress as well, predominantly by white people. And... She served the congressional district that elected her. And there were some Native people in there. But they weren't anywhere near the, the, the majority of, of her uh, constituency. And so she walked that, that party line. She, she navigated through that Democratic Party apparatus, managed to keep her nose clean, have, you know, have very little you know, um, controversy associated, associated with her. And look, she did work for Laguna Pueblo. I think she worked for their, their gaming operations. And she didn't make too many waves there, even though there was, there was some contentious issues over things like revenue sharing when she was working there. But she didn't, you know, take a hard line. Yeah, I know. She went to Standing Rock. Well, lots of people went to Standing Rock. <laughs> and they went and they came back and they said, well, I went to Standing Rock. I mean, it's not, it's not like they were on the front line getting gassed in the face or, you know, or, or hit with water cannons or anything like that. So... You know, look, I think some people consider taking the trip to Standing Rock as some sort of rite of passage about being Native. Well, let me just say right now, I didn't go to Standing Rock. 
I know plenty of people who did, but um, I felt like there was more that I could do here than, than, than being one of 10,000 people, you know, trying to, you know, get the I was a Standing Rock t-shirt or whatever else. But, but anyway, um, so I mentioned that, and, and my conversation about Native people being in these, uh, in these positions will connect up a little bit to, to what um, the next part of what I want to talk about. Because one of the things that um, is starting to get a little bit of attention um, was the previous Interior Secretary, Ryan Zinke, who is now running for Congress. And so some of his dirty laundry is, is cropping up. And, and there's been some question about, you know, the possible corruption involved in his um, uh, interior, uh, you know, department. You know, among the things that people are, are pretty well aware of is that his interior department essentially canceled or actually didn't even canceled. They didn't, they, they, they just buried um, the effort by two native um, peoples, uh, groups of native peoples in Massachusetts to opening up gaming facilities. And he didn't decline them. He didn't reject them so they would have a proper recourse to do something about it. They just buried it. And so just, just kept those people in no man's land, in limbo. And so... Now what's coming out is, well, you know, there was a lot of lobbying going on. And, you know, we understand that Zinke may have met with, uh, with gaming lobbyists who were against this and that kind of stuff. Well, let's, let's be clear. Ryan Zinke worked for Donald Trump. Donald Trump had major issues with natives, um, native people involved in gaming. He blamed his failure as a casino mogul. <laughs> it's almost funny to call him that. Um, on the fact that uh, the native people had some unfair advantage over him, over him. Now, now, other casinos were able to make money, but not Donald Trump. So he blamed it. And, and he actually testified before Congress. Now, again, I, I just got to say this. You got a guy who wears more makeup and, you know, and, and has more hair work than the average drag queen. He goes before Congress and starts saying that the native people who are doing gaming in Connecticut, for instance, don't look Indian to him. So he's talking about appearance. Now here's a guy who's been fudging his own appearance forever. And he, he literally has the gall to say, well, they don't look Indian to me. That's, a, that's his line. So, I mean, look, this guy clearly had plenty of animus towards native people in general. And, and look, he cheated a bunch of native people in, along the lines and, and that kind of stuff. But it is, you can't separate the, um, the, the position that Donald Trump had towards native gaming and Ryan Zinke. So to suggest that, that Zinke was you know, corrupt, I'm not saying he wasn't corrupt, but he was serving at the pleasure of, of the president of the United States. And, and it's pretty clear what the president of the United States view was towards native gaming. Now, another little known fact and I haven't even brought it up here before, so, and in spite of me talking a lot about Seneca gaming. You know, during the, the Trump administration, the, the Senecas were already in the throes of major, um, a major controversy and, and uh, conflict with, with New York State over uh, revenue sharing. Revenue sharing, which is supposedly based on the state providing some concession that, uh, that they, and then they get some you know, revenue shared with them in return. And the Senecas never viewed they were getting a fair shake. Well, the Interior Department, the Obama um, Interior Department, uh, Sally Jewell, I think, might, might have been the, the, 
the um, cabinet secretary at the time. But um, that Interior Department, or Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, as a part of that Interior Department, had actually issued a, an opinion about the Seneca gaming um, revenue sharing with New York State, and pretty much lambasted New York State and uh, and the failure of New York State to have uh, made an adequate um, concession for the ungodly amounts of money they were receiving. The Trump administration, with Ryan Zinke, they withdrew that opinion. So the Senecas were going to use this. And, and, and in fact, that letter from the Interior Department, which, which was justified, was part of the, uh, the argument, the legal argument that the Senecas were making. They had to withdraw, uh, withdraw that, um, that part of their evidence because of Ryan Zinke, Donald Trump, the Trump administration. So, yeah, again, even if Ryan Zinke was serving at the pleasure of the president, I don't think he should be let off the hook. And, and if somebody wants to raise this issue about, you know, this level of corruption or let's not call it corruption, let's call it what it is. Racism. If somebody wants to raise the question about this level of racism, for a guy who actually served in the Interior Department, which, which was the whole, one of the main tasks, or one of the tasks of the Interior Department, is to fulfill a trust obligation that the United States is supposed to have towards Native people. And yet, some of his actions were overtly racist towards Native people. So, should he be held accountable for that as he run for, runs for Congress? Oh, hell yes, he should be. I just don't want people to forget. Uh, as somebody, <laughs> I, I did an interview this week, and somebody said, "Well, to, you know, to find corruption in the Trump administration is a little bit like shooting fish in a barrel." Well, that's true, but that doesn't mean you, we shouldn't point it out when it's there. We shouldn't shine a light on it, even if there's well, an awful lot of lights to shine. And, and Ryan Zinke in the Interior Department, um, clearly there was there was a sig significant level of racism that came into play, and and this was this was racism that that. Donald Trump harbored since his failure at, at running casinos. I mean, he, he, he loathed the fact that Native people could do gaming, and, and in many ways do gaming in places that, uh, or in, in a manner that, that states or, or private gaming companies like his you know, couldn't do. And it just, it just really pissed him off. And that's why he was so hateful towards Native people, and always has been. So... You know, for all the stuff that, 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 you know, that, that people are trying to hold Trump accountable for, this is, you know, just one in a long list. But, um, you know, Trump may, may or may not be running again in the next election, but uh, Ryan Zinke sure is. And, and he, you know, he should be called out for it. Now, and, you know, and this kind of brings me to, to the current Interior Secretary. So for anybody to suggest, just like with these these three Native or, or six Native Congress uh, persons, that, that somehow non-Native people are going to be well-served by the Interior Department because Deb Hallin is in there. Again, let me say, we didn't, we didn't put her there. The white guy in the White House did. And that's who she serves. Now, I'm not saying that she's not going to do any good work. I'm not saying that. But to suggest that somehow we're going to get special deference from her because she's Native, I mean, I, I remember when Diane Humatiwa, who is a federal judge, she was actually nominated by Obama, but the recommendations came from the two uh, Arizona senators, um, Flake and, uh, and McCain. So she was a Republican um, suggestion. She was, she was pushed forward by the Republicans. And, and I don't know if Obama, because she was a person of color, felt like he was going to you know, you know, get some brownie points for that. 
Uh, no pun intended on the brownie points. But uh, so Diane Humati will get, uh, she, she ended up getting a position as a, as a federal judge. In her first case that involved Native people, which had to do with a highway that was being run through ancestral Native lands. And the Native people are saying, look, we've got, you know, we've got um, all kinds of artifacts and, you know, archaeological, um, you know, pieces that are, that, that are there, and this should not run through there. They're, they shouldn't put this, this inter, interstate highway through our, uh, you know, through our lands. And uh, she ruled against Native people. You know, and, and in many ways, sometimes having a Native person who is in one of these positions can be disadvantageous uh, to us because now they're under this, this, you know, microscope that if they rule in favor of Native people, that they're, that they're not being, you know, unbiased, that they're, that they're making the ruling based on their own, you know, personal feelings or, or ethnicities. So it doesn't work in our favor to have a Native person there. I mean, you would think, well, well, at least she would understand the issues more. No, it doesn't matter. You know, she, she didn't make a ruling that, that gave any, I don't want to say special, but any consideration at all to the Native connection that we have, the Native people have to the lands. No, she, that, that was not even part of her, uh, of her consideration. So, again, I, I, I have to, you know, I have to, you know, remind people that when we jump into that canoe, and that's why we have this thing called the two-row wampum. And what we say is that we're, 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 on, a, we're on, on two paths on the river of life, meaning Native people and non-Native people. And we're going to experience some of the same things on, the, on, the, on that path. Or in, in, one of the ways that the two-row wampum got reinterpreted was because white folks didn't have a path on our lands. They came by boat. So what we talked about was two um, vessels running side by side down the river of life. So we used water as the analogy after white people got here because they didn't have any you know, path worn by, you know, by ancestors on our lands. They, all they had was, a, was the direction of their boat was traveling and the wake caused by the boat. So what we said is, look, on this river of life, we're going to experience some of the same you know, ad, you know, um, you know, um, problems. We're going to you know, weather, you know, whatever, rough waters. And there may come times that we help each other, but we're not going to overtake each other. We're not going to ride in your vessel. You're not going to ride in our vessel. We're not going to steer your vessel. You're not going to steer our vessel. So, and that was the relationship that Native people, and this was, you know, a Haudenosaunee thing, but Haudenosaunee had the same relationship with many other peoples before white people showed up here. And so other Native cultures adopted that same principle of, of, of a two- Two rows, two row wampum, and that was a belt that we that we uh, manufactured to to say this represents peaceful coexistence. Well, there hasn't been much peaceful coexistence, and and we have had, we have been under a constant barrage of genocide at worst, assimilation, which is genocide, a kinder, gentler genocide, uh, at best. Today. You know, we gotta have to. We have to have a 15, 20 minute conversation about whether we are, are or are not Americans, U.S. citizens, or Canadian citizens. To, for us to even have that conversation is very problematic, especially for elected officials. 
you know, we, we have our own governments, right? You would think, okay, if only Native people can vote in their Native elections, and, and some are elections and some are, you know, traditional governments that have various apparatuses and processes and procedures for determining leadership. But if only Native people can, uh, can be a part of that, why should we be a part of white, white people's governments? And of course, there's a reason for that, because this is the effort to assimilate us. And what, what better examples of assimilation is not only us participating in their elections, but running in them. So look, I'm not, I'm not calling Therese Davids or, um, you know, or, or Kai uh, um, uh, Kahele or um, Mary uh, Peltola. I'm not calling them traitors. They just chose, they jumped in the other ship, that's all. And I'm not saying they lost their skin tone or the memories, uh, yeah, and their, and, but they don't necessarily have the connection because they serve a different master. They're serving a different people. They're serving the Americans under the U.S. Constitution. Wherever their, their hearts are and their minds are as it relates to their indigeneity, that's not what got them in these, into these positions. Not Deb Hallen. You know, and I would say the same thing for, for any person of a distinct culture who strives to have success in this dominant culture that, that is pretty much still very white dominated. I mean, it, you don't need much of a color chart when you're looking at the seats of Congress. And you sure don't need much of a, of a color chart, you know, any, any place else. You know, uh, in, in, you know, look, we look at the, the court system, and I get it. I know there, there's plenty of black judges. And, well, I don't know if there's enough, but there, there are many black judges, and there's some Hispanic judges, and, and even the Supreme Court has, you know, uh, uh, Sonia Sotomayor and, you know, and uh, Katanya Jackson and, um, uh, you know, <laughs> And Clarence Thomas, and you know, so yeah, I, I, I get it. I mean, there are people of color there, but they didn't get there because they were fighting for civil rights. They may have been representing some, some uh, positions of law, you know, within the judicial system, and didn't do anything too controversial to get there. But that doesn't mean they're going to go out on a limb for us, or even necessarily. I mean, look, I, I, I think about somebody like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Jewish woman on the court. She was considered a liberal darling, and I know I've mentioned this many times on my show, but, but she cited the doctrine of Christian discovery as, in foot, as footnote number one in her ruling against Oneidas, who purchased land back, saying, no, you can't do that. You, you can purchase it, but you're gonna, it, it's still going to be a USD. It's going to be a state deed. You can't reclaim your land. And, and that's the position she took. In spite of being Jewish and whatever her, her ties to Israel and, you know, and Jewish resettlement and everything else, you know, people still want to claim her, you know, that, that she was, you know, the badass, right, of the, of the court. Well, she didn't do that much for us. You know, she may have lamented about it later in her book, but that didn't change anything. So I have to remind people that the Native experience is one that has challenges all over the place. And w when people try to suggest well, so what some of the solutions are gonna be, which is to somehow assimilate us, and then, and then 
to characterize those of, of, of native descent, those of us who are going to earn the banner of being successful, are always going to be the people who are the most assimilated, served in the military, so, you know, um, go to church, you know, uh, line, line up with one party or the other, political party, and find their, their way through those party apparatuses to, to gain success there. And again, I'm not even condemning it. But Sharice Davids is, is a, a congresswoman out of, out of Kansas. She doesn't represent me. Uh, you know, Kai, uh, Kahele, you, he, he's a congressman for Hawaii. I can't, I can't honestly say that it represents the Hawaiian kingdom movement. I don't know how you could possibly suggest that. And, and Mary Pothola, look, these all may be really nice people. And, and I haven't heard anything terrible, you know, about any of these people. And I'm not judging them as human beings. But... Man, I just, I just can't tolerate this notion that because of their native ancestry that anyone would suggest, least of all them, that because they got elected predominantly by white people, that, that now there's indigenous representation in Congress. No, that's not, that's not the way it works. You, you give up a certain amount of your responsibility to your own people. when. When you start trying to expand your constituency to so many, to volumes and volumes of white people. I hope they do right by us while they're in those positions. But you know what? It's, it, there's three Democratic uh, Congress people who have uh, Native backgrounds, and there's three Republicans. I don't see those six of them lining up to, to push forward some major, uh, you know, reform on the part of the federal government as it relates to our relationship with them. You know, look, I've talked about residential schools, and I don't, and I haven't heard a word out of the Republican congressman, by the way. But um, you know, you you hear uh, platitudes offered up by by Democrats about you know dealing with the, the residential schools, but if we're not talking about restoration of both the lands some of the lands anyway, that were lost during 150 years of residential schools and our autonomy, our distinction, our identity? How can we have to talk about reconciliation? Reconciliation is, is, is a paycheck. Anytime people talk about reconciliation, oh yeah, we're going we're gonna to write a check. We're going we're gonna to authorize funding. They may, it may be funding for a program, but it's still all about money. And I'm not suggesting that restoration of, of lands isn't going to cost something too. But you know what? What would restoration of our autonomy cost? I mean, would it really be costly? I mean, or would that level of independence and autonomy and distinction be something that we can use to drive our own successes? That's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. I say, I say look, the more we can market, if you will, again, we're talking money, our regulatory advantages, our distinctions, as we as we enter into businesses. Look, let me let me take a little bit of a walk down memory lane here. You know, 40, 50 years ago, most white folks or non-native people wouldn't even go on a native lands. 
it was it was considered unsafe. Oh, you don't want to go to the reservation. You don't know what they'll do to you there. I mean, there was this taboo, and you know, and anybody who did go, you, you know, there was always some you know some question. Well, yeah, what what made you go there? Why would you go on their land? Well, so what happens is we um, start taking an interest in becoming entrepreneurs on our lands. I mean, because up to that point, we had to work, go off, off our territories to find jobs. And of course, that, you know, that would turn into sometimes tax fights and that kind of stuff. You know, one of the more successful areas that Native men got involved in was the construction trades. And, and of course, many people know, if you're from New York City, you know Mohawks and High Steel, the, the Mohawks who walked, the, you know, built those skyscrapers. And it was, you know, it's, it's one of the famed skill sets that, that Native men, not just Mohawks, but Native men had. So we had to place our life in peril to build these monuments to, you know, to white progress, <laughs> those shiny cities on the hill, um, and then earn income and bring it back to, you know, pretty desolate and impoverished Native territory. Well, at some point, we decided we're going to open businesses. And I, I talked about this a little bit last week when I talked about 40 years and we're still fighting New York State over tobacco. Well, that was one of the areas that we, we started. We started opening up smoke shops. What people don't realize is that beyond the money that was generated and the income and the commerce stream that was, you know, that was built based on us just selling one product, cigarettes, it began to change the dynamic. Because now we were asking people to come onto our lands. We're asking the non-native public to come onto our lands. And little by little, it started changing people's perceptions of us. Now, I'm not saying everybody. Look, we didn't eradicate racism by selling cigarettes. <laughs> no, but, but we certainly opened up a different dialogue. Relationships got formed. Both, you know, some of them were associated with business, but some of it was just the, 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 the commerce, the trade. You know, see, having a regular customer come into a shop. We expanded those into gas stations and convenience stores. So we had more flows of, um, uh, of non-native people coming onto our territories. I, like I said, over the course of just a couple of decades, there was such a dramatic change in how we interacted with the people around us. Because not only did, did white people not want to come on our lands, we didn't want to go into their communities. I mean, we, we had, there, was, there were essentially unwritten sundown laws. If you were a native kid and you were seen in the village outside your territory, the, the, the white community, you had a great chance of getting picked up by the cops, I mean, <laughs> and arrested for something. So it changed. Now, it didn't change everywhere because, look, when I'm talking about some of these uh, territories that I'm familiar with here um, in Seneca Territory or Mohawk Territory or, or whatever, uh, Onondaga, uh, Tuscarora, uh, we have a, a fairly substantial non-native population around us. Now, native territories that were really, really remote, and our territories are fairly remote. I mean, it's not like we, you know, we didn't have a bustling, uh, you know, intersections in, in any of our territories. But, um, but we were close enough to, to you know, Rochester or Syracuse or Buffalo, um, you know, and, and so we're, we're in an area that had a fair amount of you know, people who had mobility, who could move around and, and, and shop. Other places, not so much. And some of those places still have major um, divisions and major, um, you know, almost antagonistic, uh, antagonistic relationships with, um, 
with the non-native public around them. I mean, there was only a few years ago we saw, you know, a guy in, uh, I think it was Little Falls, um, Montana, dumping beer on kids who had gone to a, a semi-pro hockey game. You know, so the white guy just thought it was fun to dump his beer from his you know, luxury suite, his luxury box, on, onto the little kids who were rewarded because of their school performance by going to a hockey game. We still have some of that here, but you kind of get out, got to get out a little farther than the immediate um, relationships that we've built up over the last, you know, 40 years. But I, I don't think people understand how much this has transformed. And you can see this in places like, like Long Island, too, the, the two uh, Native communities down there as well, uh, Puspatuck and, um, and Chinnacock. No, there, so things have changed. Now, I'm not saying there aren't tensions. Obviously, the Chinnacock had all kinds of tensions going on over just putting a sign up on their, on their lands. But, you know, I, I think it's, it's worth noting that for the downsides that there are, and there are downsides in selling cigarettes, obviously, and, uh, and some of the, you know, doing gaming and that kind of stuff, um, there were some upsides. And some of the upsides had to do with, with changing that perception. Now, I won't say that the change of perception was, was all good, because now we got stereotyped as, Owning, you know, all Native people own casinos, or all Native people have smoke shops, and all they they all make they're all millionaires by selling, you know, you know, merchants of or products of death in terms of cigarettes, and and yeah, and so there there was also a negative side of um of how that perception changed as we became a little bit more interactive with the non-Native public around us, and of course, being in those businesses never. Um, really resolved the the political tensions. If anything, they they made them worse. And and I'm not just talking about the governor of the state of New York, uh, you know. Or but all of all, I mean, look, we we've had tensions with politicians across the states on everything from taxes to land use to I mean to um, distribution. So. We still have a lot, of, uh, a lot of tensions that never get resolved. Like I said, 40 years, and, and we're still fighting New York State over, over our, our involvement in a tobacco business that essentially, and again, I remind people, tobacco was ours. It, it kind of got hijacked and got turned into something that we never used it for, but it became this very, very commercial product that, uh, you know, this multi-billion dollar industry, global industry, and then we clawed back and grabbed a little piece of it. And we get put under a microscope for it. And we, we, we fight, you know, to the tune of millions and millions of dollars on a, on a yearly basis to, to stay in that game so we can um, have something that bolsters our private sector. But you know what? <laughs> You're not going to see indigenous Congress people push through any, uh, any, any reform to, to protect our businesses or to acknowledge that beyond gas, gaming, and cigarettes, there are other businesses that we should be able to get involved in that capitalize on our regulatory advantage. No, most people in, in political office want to fight us on any, any angle we might have that allows us to, to capitalize on some advantage. Because look, first and foremost, we're disadvantaged. We're, we've been shoved off into out-of-the-way places away from major thoroughfares, away from major populations. We're fortunate enough, you know, here, like where I live here in Seneca territory, not to be, not be too far away 
from, from some fairly affluent white folks. <laughs> and I'm not saying it's always a good thing, but, but we're not that far away. We're not hundreds of miles away. But in spite of that fact, we still, we still get a treatment that, um, that is second rate. Uh, there was recent news about how much the life expectancy of Native people diminished compared to life expectancy of white people. And yes, life expectancy across the United States has dropped. But it's almost double, it dropped double for Native people as opposed to white people. And, you know, and this is, you know, a lot of this is COVID related. Why is that? Because, because we were hit harder by COVID than anywhere. Why would that be? We're not, we're not really an unhealthier population. Well, it's a funny thing what poverty will do. And most Native people are living in some form of abject poverty, whether it's in, you know, Hopi Navajo territory or whether it's Lakota territory. Or, or, or whether it's here on Seneca territory. Yeah, there's, there's gaming dollars here, and, and they do offset some of it. But we don't have adequate health care. I mean, the Indian Health Services, they passed the a buck to, to the states. In order for me to get service at the, at the clinic at Seneca Nation, I have to apply for Medicare. Because Indian Health Services won't pay, they don't pay the bills until every other... Uh, um, you know, alternative has been exhausted. So the states get an unfair um, burden placed on them as, as it relates to our health care. Our health care was promised. That, how do you think you got all this land from us? Health, education, and welfare. We get substandard education. We get substandard health care. And the welfare that's meant by that expression is not placing us on social services. We shouldn't be in these, in, in America's safety net. This, is, this isn't charity. The, these, this is a bill that's owed. This is a debt the United States owes to us because they've occupied 95% of our lands, 99% of our lands. And they did it through very nefarious means, including... 150 years of residential schools. So I, I bring some of this stuff up because I know the general population doesn't understand these issues. You know, and, and as I do this show in, in, you know, for New York City and for Washington, D.C., look, these are, are two major markets for my messaging to reach out to. And, I, and look, I, I, I hope and, you know, I ex expect that, that Native people listen to this program. But I very much expect non-Native people to listen to it because I'm in the radio in two cities. And whether you agree with everything that I say, which is fine if you don't, but you do have to understand that some of what I'm saying is, is really factual. It's not just opinion. And so if you want to disagree with facts, well, that's on you. If you want to disagree with opinions, okay, we can have that conversation. But, you know, part of... Again, and I, and I realized I didn't do this at the beginning of the show, so please allow me to do it now. But um, it, is, it is so important to have space on WBAI in New York City and on uh, WPFW in Washington, D.C. 
So if you're listening to the program, I'm, I'm going to take a break just before I uh, hit, hit my final topic here. I want to remind people that we are listener-supported radio, and we need your support to stay on the air. And I say I need it, but the stations need your support because I don't get any of the donations, any of the contributions, any of the sponsorships that you guys send in to WBI and WPFW. It doesn't come to me. In fact, the vast majority of producers on these stations are volunteers. And there are some paid staff to help us, you know, guys like Reggie and uh, you know, Michael G and others who, who help us get on the, uh, you know, on, uh, you know, uh, I mean, we, we have people that, that have to do a job here. But we need your support. So if you're listening in New York City, please go to the pledge line. It's 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or go online to give to WBAI.org. And look, I hope some of you will be generous. You know, I, I don't think I've gotten a whole uh, $1,000 uh, donations for, for my segments on here. But I'd like some. But I'd also like to, I, I used to have a pretty good list of WBAI buddies who signed up during my, uh, my program. And I'd like to build that back up. So again, if you go online, uh, give to WBAI.org. You can follow the prompts. You can make a one-time donation, a substantial donation. You can do a, you know, a modest donation. You can do a time donation. You can also become a sustaining member of the station by becoming a BAI buddy and you sign up to, to make a $10 contribution per month or, or, or whatever, whatever you can afford. And the same thing goes for WPFW. So if you're listening in Washington, D.C., uh, I ask that you go to their pledge line, uh, WPFW's pledge line, which is 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739. Or go to their uh, donation page at WPFWDC.org slash donate. And the same thing goes there. Follow the prompts. You can make a one-time donation, a time donation. Um, there, there are several ways you can donate to both stations. And if you go online, you can see um, the manners in which you can, um, you can make those donations. All right. Last thing I got to talk about before, uh, before I go here. Um, in New York City, there is going to be a parade. Um, and it's, it's scheduled for October 15th, I realize that's not Indigenous Peoples Day. It's the, the Saturday afterwards. October 15th at 12 p.m. Uh, it starts at Madison Square Park. Not Madison Square Garden, but Madison Square Park uh, in Manhattan. It's, uh, it's an Indigenous parade to honor the Indigenous Peoples of America. Now, it's the first one. And, you know, these things you know, take um, a lot of effort to pull off. Just getting the permit is a huge accomplishment. I mean, getting the, the commitment from New York City to, um, to allow this parade to take place on the, on the streets of Manhattan is, uh, is, is quite an accomplishment for the folks who were involved in this. I do plan to have a guest in the uh, couple of days before this event, um, the Thursday before uh, October 15th, uh, to talk about the details. And, uh, but do look for it. I, you know, I'll, I'll post some information on my Facebook pages as well. But... Um, you know, we, we haven't done away with those Columbus Day parades yet, but at least we will have this parade. And look, when it comes to indigenous peoples, these parades not only represent our, um, uh, our culture, um, putting us out there as a celebration for 
existing, you know, still in a place like New York City. And there's 100,000 Native people that live in New York City at any given time. And I don't know that we're going to have 100,000 people show up for this parade, but um, I'm hoping an event like this can bring Native people who are oftentimes very disconnected in a, in a city like New York, uh, New York City uh, together. Um, there's also a, a climate element. I mean, there was a, sig a significant part of our population that was involved in the, uh, in the climate march, uh, which actually the, the anniversary was just a couple of days ago of the climate march in uh, New York City. Um, we led the charge, we led the front of, that, uh, of that, that parade. And I thank the folks at WBAI for allowing me to uh, sit with uh, Mimi Rosenberg and, and cover that event up uh, by, ironically, Columbus Circle. Um, but uh, so this is, this is it, this is our, our first ever uh, Indigenous Peoples Parade in New York City. Um, not even sure what to expect. Um, I'm, I'm hoping for the best and, and acknowledging that, that these things um, take an awful lot of planning and an awful lot of participation. So I'm hoping uh, it's well attended. And I hope that you come out. I hope if you're, if you're in the, the city on the weekend, um, that on October 15th, you'll head down uh, to uh, Manhattan, head down to Madison Square Park and I'm not exactly sure which route they have they've got they're taking, but uh, that's where they will be will start off. So if you head down there, um, uh, you, you'll you'll get a chance to to see because you know you listen to me on the radio. That doesn't mean you have a whole lot of interaction with native people. This is an opportunity for for the general public to see uh, native people, and of course, um, we will also be celebrating on that Monday Indigenous Peoples Day as uh, other people are are celebrating that other holiday. Um, so, um, I know Randall's Island usually hosts, um, events out there and, and although I can't confirm that that's happening this year, uh, look, look for it, look for what, what's happening in New York City, um, for, uh, you know, for Indigenous Peoples Day and, and be reminded that the, this parade will take place in, uh, um, on the Saturday, the, the 15th. Um, and again, I'll have some guests join me in a couple of weeks to, to talk about it, but, uh. Yeah, so this is, um, uh, you know, there are a lot of people excited about this. And, and there are Native people who live in the area, the Ramapo in particular. I know my, my good friend Michael G. Haskins went out to Ram Ramapo territory, uh, the Lenape territory, uh, for some of their events. And, and there are Native people who live in, in the area, not just Long Island, but uh, all of New York City was once indigenous land. So um, uh, many of us claim it still is. So. Uh, hopefully this parade will bring a lot of people out, a lot of people together. And, and it won't be, it's, it's not going to be Native people in a fishbowl. It's going to be an opportunity for, for non-Native people to interact and mingle and, and hopefully learn something on that given day as well. So I want to, you know, I'll thank people in advance for, for marking this down on their calendars and, uh, and making an attempt to, to go see this. I'm not sure that I'll make it. Uh, I may, but, um, uh, for those of you who don't know, I, I do my program, this program, from uh, the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation. I'm grateful again that WPFW and WBAI air the program and allow me to do the, the show remotely. I, I really do miss coming to New York, and I used to come every week uh, to do this. And, and it's been since COVID that WPFW picked up the program. Uh, so I'm, I'm really hoping, I'm looking forward to at some point making the trip to Washington. Uh, to do a couple of in-studio in shows and making the trip back to New York to do some uh, programs. But you know what? In order to do that, it requires you to keep us on the air. So 
again, I, I ask that you go uh, to the pledge lines um, for WPFW and, and WBAI. Go to the websites for WPFW and WBAI and make your contributions. Keep the stations, these stations going. And, you know, I look, I know oftentimes, you know, we, we have to oversell this, this idea of being listener-supported radio because that's what we are. We don't have commercials. We don't have corporate sponsors. I mean, it's, it's ironic, even when you listen to NPR, you hear that the Koch brothers and Facebook and Twitter and, and all these major contributors are, you know, are, buying, you know, are paying for the programming on, on NPR. It's somehow, uh, to me, in spite of all the money, it cheapens it. And you know, for us, we're, you know, we're running on shoestring budgets most of the time. And we're always in a little bit, we're in a little bit of a game of catch up, but um, you can make the difference by by contributing to these stations. So so please do. I'll, I'll run, run them off real quick one more time. Uh, if you're in New York City, the pledge line is two one two two zero nine two nine five zero. That's two one two two zero nine two nine five zero. The website is give to that's g i v e the number two w b a i dot org. Uh, if you are listening and want to support us uh, in Washington. DC, the pledge line is 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739. Uh, and the website is wpfwdc.org slash donate. Uh, look, this program goes up as a podcast as well, so you can look for it. Uh, if you ask your smart speaker to play Resistance Radio with John Kane, uh, it will come up. Um, and uh, you'll, you'll, you can hear the latest programs, and it'll, it'll keep playing them as long as you want to listen. And uh, so I, I, uh, I appreciate those of you who check us out as a podcast. Of course, if you go to the station's archives, you can hear the, the program as well. Um, I also have to tell people I, I do another podcast called Let's Talk Native, which was my original show. Um, and that podcast comes out you know, once every couple of weeks, maybe once a month, um, depending on the topic. And you can find that by uh, asking your smart speaker or, or Google searching Let's Talk Native with John Kane," and you, um, and you can listen to that program as well. I want to thank you for, uh, uh, for joining me. I want to thank you for giving me your, your attention and your, your time and the space in your lives. And uh, uh, again, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be a part of these two radio stations and to be a part of, um, uh, of your afternoons. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.